I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's ongoing James Bond podcast. Uh, You might be aware that uh, in recent episodes we've uh, run out of James Bond movies to talk about, but we're not going to let that stop us from uh, giving you the content you crave. Uh, So we're we're going on a little wild diversion and taking in some of the Bond-adjacent films. So joining me in that endeavor was, as always, going to be Jake Trapila, my co-conspirator. Jake, how you doing? I'm doing just fine, Jack. How are you? I'm good. It's good good to be back again as we, we wait for no time to die. It, it will happen. Exactly. We have time to wait. We, <laughs> we have much time. That movie title is getting less and less credible with every month that goes by. Uh, on top of that, we also have a very special guest. We have Adam Myros joining us. How are you, Adam? Uh, thanks for listing off all my uh, myriad credits. You know, I'm a, I'm I'm one of those legit people who you have on. You 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 produce this. You can just add those in later. <laughs> uh, those non-existent <laughs> credits will certainly be added at a later time. Oh, you're you're welcome here. We don't we don't we don't rest on credits. That's not what interests us. Yeah, well, uh, I'm actually very excited that Adam is here. Uh, regular listeners of For Your Ears Only might recall he was on Live and Let Die, and he was on our License to Kill episode. But for tonight's episode, which is actually a very special one, first of all, it's a double feature. We'll be talking about two movies. And secondly, Adam is the guy who brought both of these films to the table for us to discuss. Isn't that right? That's Adam? right. This is true. Yeah, I, I as as stated on probably the the earlier episode I did, uh, I I didn't really grow up with James Bond. You know, it wasn't really a a huge fixture in my household. Most of my experience with the series is limited to Brosnan forward. And uh, yeah, I uh, these movies, uh, I I don't know. I they they felt like they were regular cable staples at some point they were they were in like the amc turner rotation at a certain stage uh something i kind of came upon as a a youth and it actually kind of fit right alongside sort of like your adam west batman as something that has a certain degree of camp and appeal that uh, it really worked for me as, as a youth you're talking about the two films we're about to discuss correct those are the two, yes. All right. <laughs> yeah, so so we clarify we're talking today about a duo, as Jake said, of Our Man Flint and In Like Flint, which came out 65 and 67, I think. Sorry, 66 and 67. I think they, they came out within a year of each other. And so these are piggybacking off the Sean Connery, off the first generation of James Bond. Uh, this first one, Our Man Flint, would have come out just after Thunderball. And then uh, In Like Flint came out the same year as You Only Live Twice. So, um, yeah, very much in the spirit of James Bond, but thoroughly American. So uh, kind of a, a curious a curious breed with James Coburn taking the, the titular role as uh, Derek Flint. 
I didn't realize his first, his first name was Derek until the second one, actually, which uh, struck me as an odd, I don't know why, <laughs> just a very odd first name for a suave, super spy. Um, but yeah, so, so Adam, you say you kind of grew up with these movies. So um, yeah, kind of the, how, how would you compare these to a Bond film? It is interesting. Again, I, I wouldn't have considered it. Uh, I, it's not something I, I've thought about with the time frame, but that these exist concurrently with Connery Bond seems very off because they're... I, I suppose the closest comparison is that Roger Moore era. It's uh, pretty... I, I think that maybe it seems like you guys didn't quite like our man Flynn as much as maybe I do because I... I get it. It's it's a strange movie because it's not. It's kind of got a foot in both sides of the of the aisle here. It's like one on one hand, it, it almost feels like it's trying to be a lot zanier than James Bond, and maybe a bit of a send up, especially when you consider that this predates the wackier adventures of of Bond. Uh, and on the other hand, it it really isn't pitched as a comedy uh i think it leans more into that in the in the second film but our man feels pretty straightforward like they were trying to make an american james bond like oh yeah we we're gonna make our own we'll make a ton of money we'll have a great franchise let's go but it's still campy as shit <laughs> it is definitely yeah. strange so yeah i just to, to say like um for the first film it's curious because, like you say, it's comedic, certainly. It has that element, but it doesn't feel necessarily more outlandish than Goldfinger or Thunderball or kind of reference points for James Bond at the point, uh, you know, at this time. Um, I say it predates Roger Moore, so a lot of the stuff they do, Bond would outdo in a way. <laughs> it would go zanier. Um but but it's still yeah kind of strangely straightforward film in terms of when, once you understand the template of Bond himself as being a sort of Renaissance man, a man of of uh, exceptionally good breeding in the British sense. Say they port that over to an American who is kind of a little unusual. Um, he has kind of he almost polygamous. Uh, he just lives with three women. Or four, no, four women, women sorry, yeah. four. Uh, that becomes a joke in the second film. They, they 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 tone it down. They cut it down to three because he had too many too many girlfriends. Um, but also, uh, like he he is into ballet and he even performs ballet in the second film. There's there's kind of a strange, um, it's, it's kind of getting the handle on this character. You know, the the, the British archetype of Bond is very easy to kind of come down to, you know, that kind of Oxford, Cambridge sort of, you know, uh, well-bred man who, you know, knows about cigars and whiskey and, you know, is is just very, you know, private schooled and very, very smart and erudite and hangs with all the best people and dapper fashion. Um, Flint is is a stranger amalgam of, of characteristics to me. He is um, impossibly... Uh, well-educated, but not really attached to any kind of a, an institution. Um, Ex-military, I guess. That we, we have a fake uh, group. Uh, what's it called? Zowie. Zowie. I don't even remember what it stands for. Does anyone remember the acronym? Uh, no, I, I don't even think it's introduced. Because Zowie does not... Unless I just missed something. I don't even think it's fucking mentioned in our men, Flint. It's, it's, it's on the... T yeah, it, it's, it's on, on the, the table. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So, so they do exist. Maybe they, yeah. they don't make a big deal out of it. But yeah, he's formerly of Zowie, which is like this international kind of, I guess, like NATO. Um, well, and, I, and, but I can tell you, mm-hmm. uh, Zowie stands for the Zonal Organization World Intelligence of Espionage. God, that is that is Zowie. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, considering Spectre is the special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, terrorism, revenge, and extortion, I would say Zowie is, isn't too far of a stretch to me. And again, that's that's kind of where we're at with this whole movie to me. Is it's kind of like it's goofy, but it's also not not really that far off from where Bond was. Like Bond has always had a tongue in cheek to some degree. But just to to finish it off, you know, kind of like that. Um, Flint is, is, you know, exceptionally well-educated and ingenious, almost impossibly so, but it's not really married to any kind of a, a cultural artifact. I mean, like, I'm trying to think of what other American, like, most American heroes of this ilk are, um, to my mind, just kind of like manly, br- brusque, kind of tough guys, and he's much more, uh, not exactly effeminate, but um, much more kind of cosmopolitan. Maybe he, he's very—he's actually quite an interesting construction, and and maybe showcases that in American media there isn't exactly a counterpoint. I guess maybe like Man from Uncle, if I were more familiar with that. Um, I, I don't recall how those characters interact exactly, but but he's a. Uh, He's a strange kind of a guy, but uh, he he gets mixed up in in having to save the world again, of which he's originally not particularly fond of doing, unlike James Bond, who absolutely just can't help himself. Flint is kind of like, oh, you don't need me, it's fine. He's he's living the high life and kind of private wealth, hanging out with his four girlfriends, uh, doing this fencing and acrobatics and so on. But he's eventually called out of retirement. Yeah, well, along with just being very intelligent, he's also seems to be trained in any any sort of martial art that exists when we first meet him he's attending a karate class where he handily beats four i don't know if they're students or other people on his level but uh, he's also shown taking on two people at once in fencing the whole time the american government is trying to recruit him and he just kind of brushes them off until his boss his former boss who's like the m of these pictures is cramden played by lee j cobb finally recruits him to to take on the mission yeah, I it is the idea of Flint is an interesting one to explore because he certainly does not fit into any sort of American action archetype. In fact, I would suggest that American action audiences generally <laughs> loathe someone who who is like overeducated and a, a jack of all trades. Like this sort of like I, that that is where I guess it falls into more of spoof territory. Is that it's almost like they're taking the concept of Bond and attempting to crank it up a little and being like yeah well this guy's so good at everything but this guy he's even better he's the best at every single thing on earth uh and it doesn't really is right i don't know if it's meant to read as comedy it really it's a strange movie in a way because some of the concepts are inherently entertaining with understanding of uh, you know, the series is riffing on and what's going on at the time, any geopolitical knowledge, but it, it makes it kind of like chuckle worthy. But this is not a film that really traffics in jokes. Well, yeah, I was going to say. So, first of all, I've, I've never seen either of these films um, before with this podcast. Uh, my reference point in them is actually from the second Austin Powers movie where Austin turns the TV on in the hotel and he says, Hey, in like Flint, that's my favorite movie. And, uh, <laughs> 
that's all I know of these movies. And I knew that James <laughs> Coborn was the lead. Um, my thoughts slash potential fears going into this, these movies is that they would be farcical in the sense that Casino Royale 1967 was just a flat out spoof of the Bond films. Um, and I was actually kind of surprised to find myself disarmed that these are actually very like sober and straight faced films like as as the first one goes on i'm just like oh this is like an a, a real it feels like a real attempt at a spy picture and then just every now and then he pulls out his cigarette lighter and does something outlandish with it but um yeah i was so i was kind of taken aback and and surprised at at uh yeah how how legitimate these films are trying to be at also handle you know dealing with something that is obviously so outlandish that you can't possibly take it seriously it's a weird balance to strike, but I think what really makes it work is uh, Coburn's performance in both of them. He's he's just fantastic to watch as an actor in anything, and so I think he's got a good hold on the the assignment at hand here, as they say. Yeah, um, I think like within both of these films, my takeaway is that I think the the details, some of the, the larger story details, are quite subversive of kind of bond tropes uh, particularly in like our man flint um we have for example that the bad guys are a, a trio of quote-unquote mad scientists <laughs> who are actually basically trying to uh strip power military power from from zowie and like a nato that nato structure who are still you know technically military armed nations and basically want to bring about a world of peace um there, there's shades of communism to that, I think, in their idea of, you know, kind of this utopia where everyone hangs around, but they also, like, hypnotize women to make them pleasure units. There's, there's sort of this <laughs> very weird construction. But, they, they, you know, there's a subversiveness to this that really wasn't in the Bond films at this period, where the bad guys were actually, in a lot of ways, actually made very good points. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Flint himself is such a, an absurdly uh, a gifted protagonist he's brilliant at everything he his sense of smell he can detect poisons he instantly i mean he picks up clues in a way that like he's he literally like sniffs a dart and realizes that the the fragrance of the spices and their ratio coordinates exactly with a uh, a specific blend of a spice used in marseille france only which allows him to know where to go to next but um th these elements are very outlandish and yet like you say the 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 actual film itself is it feels a lot like a James Bond film. There's there's kind of a, a you know a straightness to the the glow popping element, to the procedural element, to the action elements, um, and you know the, again like a, like the early James Bond movies, the production design here really sells you know their kind of sense of like you know a grand adventure. It's it's strange like we keep saying I guess coming back to like it feels very funny on some elements, but when you're watching it, it's not like a laugh out loud kind of a project. Um, but but it certainly turns a mirror on some Bond elements. Um, and we talk like in the second film and in in like Flint, uh, our our enemies ultimately are a a cabal of women <laughs> who have taken over the world um, and and plan to you know basically strip you know men have screwed up for too long and they're going to take it over. And and it's a film about women asserting their dominance. And there's actually a really interesting passage within that where that where. Uh, Flint tries to convince them, you know, there's no need for you to, they, they essentially stockpile nuclear weapons and they're going to use those to, to 
uh, wrest control of the gov- world governments to themselves. And he says there's no need to because as women, you know, you'll you'll just you'll get it all eventually. You outlive men, you you marry them and inherit their wealth, and so on and so forth. And there's this this weird tension in that whole thing between a kind of a progressive idea of women asserting themselves versus the incredibly uh, erudite and educated Flint sounding like a fucking dinosaur, really. Um, And so these films have this kind of strange tug to them, um, you know, eco-terrorism in the first film, women's liberation in the second film, uh, that the Bond films have always really struggled with because really the Bond films are fundamentally pretty conservative. They kind of have to be. It's, you know, crown and country, you know, Britain asserting its its rightful place in the world as, you know, a very civil ruler. Um, you know, they don't have that baggage here, but they, they kind of invent some other things to, to tag them along. The idea that this is a very sort of dry comedy is, is interesting considering it is you know, more, most people associate that with, with British comedy than with American. And and this is an American conceit of anyways, but it's also, it's kind of got an almost British tone to it in, in its scripting. And mm. I, I think R. Man Flint is actually quite a good script. Uh, I, I mean, the execution is at times somewhat questionable. And I, I don't know that it ever could have been a complete success with audiences because it is non-committal in what it is and it also is it, it feels a lot cheaper than most james bond films i would say and it also feels like it never commits to being an action movie like at all there's almost no like major set pieces in this film no no there's just a couple of deft karate chops and a few explosions here and there and of course by this stage i mean uh, our man Flint came in right after Thunderball, and Thunderball was like the biggest James Bond to date, and the budgets for James Bond movies had like skyrocketed by the time you know from the first movie Doctor No, which I think came in under a million dollar budget. It was a yeah a very neat little production. By the time we got to Thunderball, there was like a twenty minute finale underwater that was absurdly expensive and difficult to produce. So in a sense, our man Flint could never. Uh, could never com- compete with that. It would have to be a really major production. But um, like I say, I think the production design, everything has a kind of a, a fun element to it. It kind of convincingly evokes those kind of like, you know, uh, your your archetypal settings of like a missile command center or the White House or a weird hippie dancing, you know, which, you know, happens happens all the time in the 60s, I think we'll find. So, you know, um, yeah, it, it works. It's like, but I think you're right. There's, there's a non-committal element to it. I think both of these films have a, they work very well up to a point, but then they sort of, particularly uh, in like Flint, they just sort of dissipate at certain points. The story loses dramatic structure. It loses stakes. And it kind of, you know, you're not really, it doesn't really have anything driving it ahead. And for those moments, it has to kind of coast on Coburn being just very charming and very assured. I mean, uh, you know, and it's also strange. I mean, he's, he's, he, every time he's in danger in these films, it's very hard to take seriously, which I guess is kind of a, a larger action film problem. Even the Bond films obviously also have this where, you know, no one's going to kill James Bond. So 
very hard to take it seriously when it's like, oh no, is this the end of James Bond? It's like, absolutely not. But it's almost, it's almost important. Like, no one can even touch this guy. Uh, he can, he can, he can feign death himself just to pass the time. He practices it and then, of course, executes it, um, you know, when, when required. Um, so that, yeah, it's, it's kind of, these films have a strange, I, yeah, this is a strange imbalance to them. Uh, where they're both very entertaining at the same time also I, I find my attention drawing away from them at certain points because it was kind of like okay I get it but you know there's there's nothing nothing holding it together here and there you know it's it's kind of maybe I don't know if it's the money or it's it's just that they you know they didn't work on the scripts that much these were Fox film scripts um, and it's, it's interesting to think about it in the idea of it being a franchise because you know, both movies did make a profit, I believe, and there is down the line a TV movie. There is like a third Flint movie. I, I don't even know if Coburn is in that one. No, but it seems that after this. No, no, yeah, okay. He wanted so nothing to do with it. That that's what I figure. Um, so like by the second movie, it seems like just the interest had waned. Um, and it just it never took it never took flight. But it also you know. It's hard to imagine where it could have gone after this, because I, I guess if nothing else, uh, Flint himself is a very interesting character as an American reconstitution of of James Bond, but he's also a little bit one note. There, there's, you know, it, there's not much you can do with him. Honestly, he's he's so utterly brilliant and charming that it's kind of like. There's, you know, could we can we imagine? You know, now I'm starting to imagine what would be the, the Casino Royale dark reboot of of uh, Derek Flint, and it would be like the fucking Born Identity or something. And uh, you, I guess you you could do it, but you know, basically what I'm saying is that uh, the character is is sort of uh, flat, and he he kind of exists in the shadow of James Bond necessarily. And Bond can go places and do things that Flint can't. So I guess it makes sense that this kind of dissipated after two films. There, there wasn't, uh, you couldn't really imagine them going too many other places with this. Um, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of does what it does, and uh, you know, it's pretty good fun for the time that's that's in it. But um, maybe maybe not the legs for a full franchise. Yeah, I think it's more the concept that had legs, and you continue to see it to this day, especially, I would say, the last uh, almost 30 years now. It, it seems like a there's been a, a new interest from Hollywood <laughs> in finding an American Bond, uh, be that your Mission Impossible yeah. films or probably more accurately, Fast and Furious has become that. <laughs> in in its own weird way, and that Fast and Furious has uh, slowly managed to fold in every genre or potential of cinema possible. Yeah, old Vin Diesel is the American Bond, really. I'm wondering also, because Bond endured also due to the fact that there is just this breadth of source material left behind by Ian Fleming, sure. and Flint is more of an original creation and with the Bond films, it took, you know, 12 entries or 11 entries before Bond goes to space. At the end of the second Flint movie, he's already going into space. So I don't know where they could take the film from there, the series from there. Um, but uh, but one thing I did want to touch upon, speaking of Bond, uh, that I really admired in the Flint films is the uh, the production design is fantastic. It really does a good job of emulating the Ken Adam set design. Um, most notably in the uh, the Zowry War Room in the first film, uh, which just kind of looks like a regular military conference room. 
And then when they decide they need an agent to embark on the mission, these like giant steel shutters open behind the front or like the, the main desks. And then they all walk into this elaborate computer room where they input the necessary skills that the agent they're looking for <laughs> should have. And all the computers just spit out the same card over and over that say Derek Flint, Derek Flint. When we must have Derek Flint. And then they go back into the war room. It's it's quite like an elaborate little sequence, which I, I really dug. It's 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 good at you know riffing on ken adams giant sets but also being its own thing which is very which i, I really got a kick out of yeah that's the problem when you talk about these running out of steam i guess is that the first like 20 minutes of our man flint are fucking amazing i think like that that whole sequence combined with like lee j cobb's character like trying to recruit flint and our introduction to him and his ridiculous bullshit like going from room to room <laughs> shushing everyone and beating like 10 men fencing for no reason it's just and having all his nude statuary in his apartment <laughs> that he has a remote control to conceal <laughs> should that be necessary sorry i don't think nudes are your thing and he the art switches out for something more conservative which may ultimately be the most american thing about this film is that it rides both sides of that like I mean, that seems like such a weird thing to have all your, your nudity and like classical art on display and then be able to hide it behind panels should yeah. you have more discerning audience guests or less discerning, I guess, in this case. Just a very... He's just... Yeah, like there's there's no Bond equivalent to that. It's just such a bizarre sequence. And again, um, I feel like polygamy advocates could look towards this there's, there's just it's it's barely even mentioned it's not even like you know that he's like a playboy he obviously is but it's just he has these four women that he lives with who aren't they just seem very happy together and sister fine wives. he's got sister wives yeah yeah he's got a he's got a, a shaving chair that dispenses foam out of the back it's there very and they fancy. all just kind of come and yeah do like his daily routine for him while he just kicks back so it's a strange uh, situation that they have set up together. He also like sleeps in this like bizarre giant half clamshell bed, uh, something I've never seen before. And he also has these guard dogs that are good at taking people in by the hand with their mouths. Into, That's right. He's the dog, the dog that bites people who don't smile. Which is, I don't even know what that is. Uh, like, what is the concept there? <laughs> well, I like that Lee J. Cobb is reading a book to try to outsmart the dog in the second film, and the dog still just doesn't fall for his bullshit and just grabs him by the hand and leads him in, and he has to slowly <laughs> smile to show that he's not a threat. <laughs> it's like, seems easy to get around that dog, but, but sure yeah. enough, why not? It's the, the flint of dogs. Audiences must have really responded to Lee J. Cobb because he probably got a little too much to do in the second film. Where uh, he, Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was suddenly kind of like the second lead. And they're like, all right, let's put him in drag and have him do misadventures. <laughs> it's like... Okay. Well, Jake mentioned Jake mentioned that they got to like you know they got to space way before uh, way before Bond. Although I guess Bond dabbled with it because you only live twice does have like a space element to it. But Bond himself, I don't think, gets into space until no. until much later. So you know it's way ahead on getting into space compared to Bond. It's also like honestly, yeah, if Lee J. Cobb is like the um, 
the the M of the franchise. Like he's he by by movie two, he's doing like the heavy lifting of like lifting of like Judy Dench in Skyfall. <laughs> like he's front and center in the entire movie. Um, and yeah, you know why not? I mean, I guess I guess it's a pretty good pretty good foil he's he is strangely expanded from being very distrustful of of flint in the first movie they had some kind of a falling out and he's very reluctant to call him back in that by the second movie he's absolutely he's he completely believes in flint's abilities um yeah let's say it's an odd an odd script oversight to in the second film that it's just like they're constantly being recorded with these fucking pencil bugged pencils in lee j cobb's office it just seems mm-hmm. like it doesn't fit with the characterization of, of Flint in the first movie, where it's just like every fucking thing he's picking up on immediately. It's, yeah, especially since the bugged pencil literally has a bright flashing light yeah. on it. And there's no <laughs> real like reason for them to be in the Zowie office to begin with, where they're being monitored, because they like demote Lee J. Cobb to like... They just suspend him, and for some reason, they're still hanging out at his office the whole rest of the movie because there's no other sets, and they need to use that plot device. But <laughs> the, the second movie definitely does feel a little cheaper. <laughs> they, they can't. They don't create like an entire uh, paradise island like they do in the first movie. Um, oh, I love that which set. Is, the fucking matte painting is so goddamn ridiculous. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> and, it's, and it's literally just. Um, I mean. That said, is like there's like one large outdoor area that's almost like the prisoner, you know, like everyone's in swim attire and just hanging out. And then if you go into the next yeah. area, it's just like apparently a 24 hour a day rock and roll go go dancing place. <laughs> um, and, and that's it. And um, but but also. Um, uh, on the far side of that's the reprogramming suite and there's like just a, a transparent curtain between the two but as soon as the curtain closes all sound is dampened out a very weird effect um very strange but this this is utopia uh, in the first movie these these scientists are ushering in a new world order that's going to be just all peaceful and wonderful because they're going to strip all the military power from the united states and every other country um, but they also, I just want to program everyone to be sex slaves. Um, it's, I don't, <laughs> the politics don't really map well, on this one. You know, Jack, they, had to, the end, they had to be like, all right, this is reading a little like, uh, you know, we got to make the bad guys seem evil in yeah, some way. Making a little too much sense. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, but even at the end of Our Man Flint, in a really weird, there's a really weird part where we're, Flint is about to destroy their entire island and they literally cede control to him. They're like, look, we love peace so much. We will just surrender right now. <laughs> just don't destroy all of our, you know, technology and everything we've built here. And and Flint is like, hell no, this isn't my idea of paradise and destroys everything. And it's kind of like... Uh, you know, it's not really asked in the film, but there is this question of like, well, maybe there's some kind of a midway on what's being explored here, but I guess not. Yeah, you wonder uh, about the intent uh, of the script in that, <laughs> because it does feel like a, a critique of the American ideology on that front, too, where it's just like, oh, well, these people might be doing good in the world, but fuck you. It's, it's my way or the highway. Flint is absolutely like an individual. You know, he's, he's absolutely, you know, a self-made man. So, yeah, he's, he's the, the ideal of Western liberalism, and he has no time for these peaceniks. Yeah, well, I guess if, if science is the enemy in the first film, then I guess feminism is the enemy in the second film. Because the plot here is this this group of women who are 
trying to brainwash other women using the hair dryer units hair at salons to take over the world. And meanwhile, Lee J. Cobb is caught in this sex scandal with a woman who he met at a bar so so that they could discredit Zowie and therefore not have anyone pursue them in their endgame to achieve a global matriarchy. That's the plot. That's, uh, that's, until it's not. I guess that's one of my major problems with, with In Like is that it, it just peters out so badly at the end where they they just feel the need to yeah. for some reason insert like a a more stock bad guy they're like well now these fascists have taken over from the women it's like well why yeah it's it's a very weird detail and that the women in in like flint have everything planned out and there's it's actually like jake mentioned there's like a a, a blackmail trap set for for lee j Cobb's character and there's actually quite a lot of um planning and story elements behind this and then they they kidnap the president and replace him with an actor who has had many many surgeries to look exactly like the president um you know but they have this incredible grand plan and then honestly at the at the finish line they are scuppered by just one man who decides to they just go rogue him and the the guy who's playing the president just go rogue and throw you know ruin everything and the women lose because they trusted a man and it's like that doesn't seem like something that would happen to them because they seem pretty driven by the whole concept of women running things so yeah and and then uh, literally at that point they then go into space and i I will say the space sequences the finale of this of in like flint is uh, pretty bad it doesn't it it just feels like it just attacked on thing which is strange because this yeah. film is like longer than the first movie and it's like why you know it doesn't need to continue like this now Millie, um i was reading a little bit about this and it does seem like um this film was not finished when they started like there was no conclusion in the script when they started in like flint so it was like a, it was a proper sequel they made a bit of money off the first one they were like we'll just do it again for less money and they got them all together and the director apparently uh was not very heavily involved uh, might have had some health crisis of some description i'd needed something going on so he was apparently he would just kind of show up on set sometimes and it really fell to the second unit director and uh, james coburn himself says that he had a large part in shaping the second film so it sounds like they were making up a lot of it as they went along which is makes sense it does explain some elements because the the space the whole space finale fight first he doesn't have really a budget to sell it and secondly yeah it just it feels like at this point there was there was no reason for these bad guys the the women the evil women are they evil i don't know have been are, are beaten that would be the end point and then there's another 20 minutes of kind of like postscript of like gross sexist shit with operation smooch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so confused <laughs> yeah there there was like even a point where in like could have had a, a more proper ending where um uh, flint is just kind of storming the uh the health spa where the the base is and he's he's in this rec room and he fights off like a bunch of henchmen with the different like gym equipment and tools that are in there and it's actually a pretty exciting little sequence um like i think the movie could have probably just wrapped up a couple minutes after he takes out all the henchmen like I think it uses Coburn's. He's a very naturally athletic actor. I think he also he's one of the few actors who trained with Bruce Lee and he knows Jeet Kune Do. So he there's a you know there's a there's a great like action finale that could have been the proper ending to this, but it doesn't. It, yeah, it just it goes into this 
this sequence where they have to then go into this cryo chamber and then he breaks everyone out of that. Yeah, it just it just goes on twenty minutes too long. Yeah, certainly that action set that action set piece uh through the spa where he's kind of just dicking around with gym equipment and blah blah blah. But it's so much more dynamic than really anything yeah. in, in our man Flint, uh, which is just like him climbing around a factory in a really clumsy uh action sequence but this this had some better <laughs> stuff it also had some worse stuff because like the russia yeah. <laughs> the russia stuff was quite ridiculous uh but i i don't know it adds to the charm for me i i miss these movies where it, you're gonna make a globe trotting movie without leaving a studio lot and uh you know some of the stuff uh coburn is very obviously like just stunt doubled in <laughs> and uh oh, i mean the ballet scene oh, is a, an all-timer <laughs> it's ridiculous <laughs> let's go really far back with that camera yeah yeah it's uh you know if they mention in our man flint that he like helped choreograph a ballet in the, in the second film he, he actually performs on stage <laughs> Quote unquote, he just, you yes. know yeah exactly why not i kind of uh, yeah in like flint the second film i think um I liked the the earlier stages of it more. I think it had a couple of really great jokes. It had it felt more it felt more comfortable in kind of playing with Bond. Like it, it felt more sure to me. It's like okay, this is funny, funny. You know, there's like real jokes. There's a couple of like just really simple ones. Like at one point, um, the president of the United States, who has since been replaced, is talking to uh, Lee J. Cobb's character and just says. Um, you know, I'd never turn my back on you. Don't worry. And then he literally just turns his back on him and starts talking to someone else. And it's just this very, like, just very stupid joke, but really kind of works well and is sold really well. And, you know, it's got more of these crazy gadgets. I mean, the uh, honestly, one of the things I don't understand in this, in terms of the plot, is that for, for everything they've worked out, is that they kidnap the president by using this gas that, like, suspends everyone. Like, everyone is, is paralyzed. But for some reason... The pres oh, I guess the president asked him to use a stopwatch. It wasn't the actor. I just figured this out myself. Is this movie's it's too clever for me. <laughs> that it was it was it was the original president asked uh the, asked him to use a stopwatch beforehand and when they when they kidnapped him they didn't realise the stopwatch was running. So uh our our hero um Lee J. Cobb had had the stopwatch on three minutes and he couldn't remember the three minutes, which which piqued his suspicion, but he still didn't realize it was a pencil with a flashing light in his office that was <laughs> listening to him the whole time. So they still managed to get away with it for far too long. Wait, isn't the, the pencil just kind of like broken in the corner of the office yes. for most of the movie? Like they don't notice it. There are multiple listening devices. It seems like they bugged every one of his pencils because they <laughs> uncover a, a separate pencil and reverse the polarity so they could listen in on the conversation of the people who are uh, have bugged them. But at the same time, the other bugs is still working. So they're immediately captured. Yeah, so a lot, lot going on. Yeah, and, and that time, that time discrepancy makes up most of the mystery of the first act of In Like Flint, where the yeah, the, like you said, the president he wants to get down the timing of his golf swing, and as he comes down, they press the stopwatch, and there the figures are like frozen in place, I guess, with this just temporary cryo technology, but the but you know time does not stop, so the stopwatch is going and. When they come back to reality, the president asks, well, how long was that? And Lee J. Cobb says, oh, three minutes to swing. Well, that can't be right. And then so he, he first he's concerned the stopwatch is broken. But then, yeah, the 
Flint is able to discern that, oh, no, you guys were frozen in place or something like that. Crazy stuff. Uh, we should also mention the president is played by uh, Larry Cohen, regular Andrew Duggan, uh, a very distinctive character actor. Uh, mm. Pretty good performance in this one. Yeah. He, gets, he gets a dual role, obviously, of playing both himself and his imposter. That is true, yeah. And then, yeah, but the, in like, um, we were kind of mentioning off mic that uh, in like immediately goes for more of a, a, a zany route. And when we first meet Flint in this film, he's trying to teach dolphins how to speak. It just <laughs> seems like well, he's, a, a, he's compiling a dictionary a of dolphin, dolphin dictionary. <laughs> and then that pays off later when he uses dolphin speak to infiltrate the the lab, the spa that's on the island so that he can ride a wild dolphin into the location. <laughs> that's asking for a lift. Yeah, that is like the main gimmick of the film because that also leads into his uh, sound research, which is his main gimmick, which is some sort of addition to his lighter, I believe, that can uh, move and destroy objects with sound. That's right. Yeah, he, bl- he yeah blows up a pool ball or a the uh, the the scratch ball or whatever it's called. Yeah, the and then he goes on yeah. to use it to destroy the uh, the cryogenic chambers. Yes, there are cryogenic chambers which house uh, all of his sister wives uh, because they were uh, <laughs> his new sister wives. <laughs> yes, uh, his replacement sister wives. <laughs> it's hand waved away that uh, the other ones uh, were married after being well prepared by Flint. Uh, for life. Yeah. <laughs> Classic <laughs> Again, Flint. what is that arrangement? We don't know. Right. The new we, sister we'll wives are, have apparently, uh, due to Flint's influence, are, are now too independent and strong-willed for the brainwashing. So they must be instead frozen. <laughs> if he just makes women better. Yes. That's, yeah. that's what Flint is all about. I do like the gag running through both of them that, you know, James Bond obviously is known for gadgets and every James Bond movie has an array of gadgets that he utilizes for this and that. And then in the Flint movies, he has one gadget that does everything and it's his lighter. And it's it's a pretty good one. And like, because it means that every time it's pulled out, it's and it's like a deus ex machina kind of like thing that he can just get away with anything. It can just, it's a grappling hook. It's a, it shoots lasers. It can... Uh, smash things with sound it can trim mustaches it can also light cigarettes uh, it, it's truly you know it does it does everything and it's kind of just one little small thing in his pocket um there, there's much less so so it kind of like you get all of the gadgetry but you get it condensed down into one thing and they can kind of get away with it doing whatever because that's kind of an established part of the joke um it's a kind of a clever thing um, it's sort of weird where they go with other places. For example, we have the cryogenics in, in like Flint, but then a major part of the first movie is that Flint can just kind of go into cryostasis himself by just he can stop his heart um, <laughs> and just, you know, lie down until his watch pops out and a little like thing pokes his wrist and then he will be awoken from his literally death slumber. You know, he, he will pass for dead. Um, which of course he uses to infiltrate the base by uh, arriving in a coffin because they think they've killed him. Well, he he also practices uh, absurd maneuver at his own place where he balances the heel is the heels of his feet and his head on two chairs that are spaced apart his body length, and his his female live-in partners just kind of look at him and they say, "How long has he been dead for?" Oh, about three hours. I always get so nervous when he stops his heart for this long, uh, <laughs> which it's it's funny that this is a send up of Bond. And then later 
Pierce Brosnan would stop his heart and die another day <laughs> to fool the doctors so he can escape from an offshore Korean uh, hospital where he's being held. Well, one of the Bond tricks that's really not examined fully within the film that it features, there's no establishing that Bond was able to do that. I do. Uh, in, in the IMDb trivia for Our Man Flint, though, they claim that James Coburn did that chair trick himself, that he was just able, he, yeah. he had the, the core strength to lie between the two chairs and they integrated it in. No idea if that's true or not, but if so, uh, sure, why not? Well, it looks I, like a nightmare. His heart was probably going for the whole time. Yeah, it doesn't look comfortable. It's not how chairs are meant to be used. No, no. Uh, there is also, uh, again, there, uh, we just talked about the heart stopping, which is utilized in probably, uh, this is, I was still kind of uh, in love with our man at this point. I'm like, yeah, this is just as good as, as child me remembers. It, when uh, we have our, a Bond analog in this film, which he, uh, uh, Agent 0008, <laughs> Who, uh, yes, indeed. In a, in a pretty amusing uh, section, they, they like convey information with each other through some faux bar brawl. It is uh, it's quite entertaining, and that and that actually cuts directly into him hunting down this stupid <laughs> cold cream thing, which is is to me probably the most inventive thing in either film as far as actual sort of set pieces. The, yeah, it's, that it's whole scene is, is, I think, pretty good um, because then he meets uh, the galaxy is the, the specter of the first film and he meets one of their notorious henchmen, Hans Gruber, yeah. who yes. he has a fight in the bathroom with. That's right. We have Hans Gruber's first appearance, Die Hard. They, they're ahead of the Bond franchise. They're ahead of Die Hard. Also worth noting within Our Man Flint is that uh, it, Galaxy isn't even the Spectre equivalent. Spectre exists in the Our Man Flint universe too because they actually mention, is it, could it be Spectre? And they say, no, it's much bigger than that. It's Galaxy. <laughs> so Bond is after the small fry in his movies and Flint is taking on the real big boys, a whole other organization organization up top yeah so that information leads flint to uh galaxy's essentially front which is this beauty company uh i guess that's a recurring theme in both films they don't trust beauty companies but uh yeah <laughs> flint after starting a, a torrid love affair and uh bringing uh, the the villainous gila into his harem uh if you will uh he then finds himself locked in this safe, which is, I, I, I really like this section because the safe ends up being like a removable portion of the building. And so they just like attach a trailer hitch to it and start wheeling them off. This feels like a real Bond set piece, yeah, frankly. Yeah. yeah. It's very slick. And then the whole front of the building actually retracts into the ground and they've got this alley where they immediately signal all these restaurateurs to come out and... <laughs> It's quite, it's quite amusing. It's quite amusing. Yeah, it's a yeah. good, it's a good piece because, um, because it, it it works actually. Um, you know, kind of it's shown not just to be you know a great sleight of hand, but um, they're trying to track Flint. The the good guys are trying to figure out his whereabouts, and there's a faithful taxi driver who dropped Flint off, who could show them the exact place he dropped him off, and there's no longer a building there, completely <laughs> discrediting the man. So it it works, but of course Flint is is able to escape by uh, melting the locks. I, he, you know, honestly, I, I'm trying to remember, he both melts the locks, but then is also found dead inside. I'm trying to recall how those two things integrate within the film. 
yeah, I, I don't really exactly recall how he undid the lock mechanism or or made it appear that it was uh, intact. You know, that's a good point because he does sever through like one of the locking cables using the the laser feature on his his, his lighter so that he can listen in on the the enemy plan. And then yeah, he does his his heart stopping trick when they reopen the safe. And then that's they're going to show his corpse to the scientists, which they would then send to Zowie. Which which leads to the next, like you know, this weird world balancing thing of of uh, our man Flint, um, where on the they're, they're carrying Flint in a coffin to the the lair to show off his dead body, and while they're doing that, the lead henchwoman is reading Triple uh, 008's biography about his spy <laughs> dealings, and and loudly remarks like as if such a man could exist, uh, you know. Uh, which, of course, uh, would indicate to us this woman is just looking for a great man. And who should she end up? She she ends up being the fifth sister wife, uh, strongly <laughs> implied by the conclusion of this film. She moves in with the rest of them after after her failure to kill Flint uh, draws the ire of the mad scientists who want her reprogrammed as a pleasure unit. And, and Flint rescues her from that so that she can be... His pleasure unit. I, I, I love Flint's uh, method of, of deprogramming people from this this brainwashing, where he just <laughs> walks up to women and goes, "You're not a pleasure unit." <laughs> They're good to go. He's good at hypnotism. Yep. He knows what he's doing. I also love that. Uh, not only does this movie end with, with America uh, triumphing over uh, Utopia, and uh, you know, Flint, <laughs> <Thank> God, <laughs> Flint stopping nuclear disarmament because. Uh, God forbid. Uh, it also ends with him then putting all of his his sister wives into barrels and throwing them over a waterfall. It's yeah. The, the conclusion it's kind of crazy because they throw them all into barrels um, and they go out over a waterfall and then for some reason and and then the whole island explodes, killing God only knows how many people. Which is a truly Bondian conclusion. There's every one of those movies ends with a massive explosion. Who knows how much human loss uh, with it, you know? But um, the the rescue team are in a boat right outside, and they know to immediately zero in on just picking up these barrels floating out. So uh, just as well for the women that that works out, because he seals them in really tight. He, there's actually <laughs> the first woman he puts in a barrel. He's like really, you can see him hammering down the lid and then putting the extra band in and tightening it to like really hold it in place. So I don't think those women could get out of those barrels on their own. So if there weren't a, a waiting ship outside, this this could have ended very, very poorly for all involved. Uh, the optics are not great, I'll say that. <laughs> these, these aren't like romantic uh, Niagara Falls barrels or something, you know, these no, are oil drums. <laughs> they're steel drums, yeah. Thankfully empty. And then, yeah, once they get back onto the, the Zowie uh, aircraft carrier, they're uh, in, rather than be debriefed or talk to the president on the phone to be congratulated, Flinch just immediately gets into a chair and all the, his, you know, his now five female companions just start canoodling with him. And then the volcano explodes and they all start cheering. It's a wonderful time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny that uh, uh, Flint bravely uh, stops nuclear disarmament in the first movie, which sets up the second movie where the world is again held hostage at the threat of nuclear annihilation. I, I don't really. I, I love that line from Flint where he's, he's like, oh, you can't. You can't use nuclear because uh, it's Operation Damocles or oh, whatever. Right, yes. They're using it as they're holding all these 
uh, missiles in space as a deterrent, essentially. And it's like, oh, nuclear weapons as a deterrent? That, that's that been proven not to work at all. I'm like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> 1960s America? What the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> it's been proven by, by Flint to not work because uh, he'll just go ahead and do whatever he wants anyway. Oh, yeah. It's it's kind of curious. And I, I'm curious uh, for you guys. Like, do, is there... Adam, you said you probably prefer Our Man Flint. Jake, do, do you have a preference? Which which movie works better for you? It It's... Honestly, there's some, a lot of interchangeable parts, but I think overall, Our Man Flint uh, sustains itself better than In Like Flint. Although In Like Flint does start really strongly. I was, I was kind of on your side, Jack, where I thought, oh, this is like just the way, even like it's got a better, we didn't mention this, but they both have these like silhouette women Bond-esque opening title sequence. And even the one, the one in In, Man, in Like Flint is even, is much better than Our Man oh, Flint. Yeah. The but, Iron Man uh, one's kind of rough. <laughs> I, I yeah. kind of, you know, see, it's fine because I, I kind of agree with you guys, you know, like the interchangeable things. I kind of love the intro sequence to Our Man Flint, though, because it's the girl silhouettes dancing to like naked women, like, but they're, they're mostly just like doing that crazy go-go 60s dancing. Like, it's not like, you know, the, the graceful, balletic movements of, of the, 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 like the, the James Bond versions. But at one point, one of the women just gets shot and just crumbles. <laughs> This is true. I think my my main complaint with it is the Technicolor is a little bit much. It's like a real eye bleeder. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it is a kind of scalding hot opening credits. But I just thought that joke was really exceptional. (laughs) It is. It is quite funny. I the other thing that we should point out is is Goldsmith's uh score for these. I think especially in our man, I think it's quite excellent. The way he it, he uses it as a, a motif, and it, it runs basically the same piece of music, uh, different variations, runs through bo- most of both films. Uh, and it, it's consistently catchy and fitting, and I, I think it's quite excellent. Until, of course, the end credits of In Like Flit, where it's used for for something called Your Zowie Face, which is just <laughs> yes. fucking horrible. Yeah, yeah <laughs> lyrics appear, and it's like... the there's no need for this to happen uh yeah especially when they insist on shoehorning the word zowie in like 17 <laughs> very 60s kind of a, a vibe coming from that i would say come, come back to them again because uh, yeah what we were discussing i i had problems i think settling into our man flint uh you know it's like it's not differentiated enough from bond to work as a parody but it's also not you know, it's not up with the Bond movies. And, like, particularly, I think the lack of action in the first, in Our Man Flint does hurt it. You know, there's this a real kind of a, uh, you know, it just doesn't have it, you know, compared, particularly considering at this time we had Sean Connery's arguing maybe, you know, next to Daniel Craig, the most physically attuned, uh, you know, James Bond. There's some real punchy stuff in the, in the Sean Connery Bond films. Um, but then in like Flint has, I really liked the first 20 minutes of that. I thought it was a really, you know, it feels more like an Austin Powers, like really broad comedy, you know, you know, picking up things like just goofy things. Like, for example, at one point, um, they contact Flint by he's going skydiving and a guy just skydives after him to show him a newspaper clipping while they're falling through space. And they just have like a, you know, shake their head and kind of like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. You know, just absolutely zany stuff. 
But In Like Flint really does, I think, fall apart in the later stages. It just becomes too episodic and uh, incoherent, and that last 20 minutes really kills it. It really, like, it's it's honestly a little bit like Thunderball. Um, just feels like you're, like, walking through molasses. You're just trying to drag yourself to the end line. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. I feel like between them, there could be one really great movie. Um, but as yeah. it stands, there's two two pretty good movies that definitely uh compared to some of the other stuff we've watched as our asides uh, on this one like operation kid brother uh th- this one is uh, oh, yeah. looking pretty good honestly well, I, yeah i honestly i don't disagree with anything you said jack i i think maybe some of my affinity for our man Flint is the fact that it's really difficult to peg down like it, sure. it doesn't feel like much else it, it's yeah. not a broad parody at all this is not a spoof film and but it, it rides that line and it, it keeps you going how did they intend this how subversive is this film or is it just <laughs> brazenly consumerist and cashing in on the, on the prevailing notions of the day it's it's hard to tell at many times and coburn anchors this thing excellently but yeah i it does have some third act pacing problems to be sure once they get to uh the utopian island there it's yeah, yeah, that's where the absence of action really starts to hit. And you're like, okay, I don't care to see him like wandering around this fucking industrial <laughs> wasteland any longer. It's it gets a little draggy, but I just think it's it's much stronger in in the script department than uh, in like, which has if the, that you tell me that it was unfinished does not surprise me in any way because it does feel like there's there's a really solid foundation in in like flint this whole uh missing three minutes and you know the the feminist takeover it is interesting all the way through until it's not it's like they just didn't have any way to wrap the thing up and all of a sudden you're literally watching this movie and i'm looking at it and there's five minutes left in the movie and obviously movies from 1967 don't have the same level of end credits that we're used to now but still there's five minutes left in the movie and now all of a sudden flint's going into space and you're like really there's there's fucking five minutes left in this movie do we need to be going into space and space and the space portion is mostly him just tying a guy up with uh with his uh, razor honestly just like they tied him up with like a string of floss just awkwardly to a chair uh it's it's not a very dynamic space fight by any by any means they don't even do any like you know uh like great like overlay you know miniature like have a little spaceships hurtling through the nothingness or anything it's really it's just two guys in a room pretending to be in space and it's very very apparently that yeah and i i guess that the the they really just wanted to get that uh, cosmonaut the the twin cosmonauts that he's making out with in space they just needed to get that in there somehow uh but there's that there's that stretchiness to this script for me like there are that russia sequence has a lot of issues i'll say that it 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 almost adds to the charm at times but there's also stuff that really kind of doesn't where there's just like this shitty like still established establishing image 
of some Russian nothing, and they just keep inserting it in over and over and over again uh, before cutting back to this horrendous rooftop set they have. It's just, it's just <laughs> it's, very poorly made. <laughs> it's funny because the rooftop set is it's very apparently a set, and it's got this kind of generic Russian background to behind it. But but the action sequence that unfolds there is probably one of the most advanced within the. In, the entire franchise of two motion mm-hmm. pictures and um, you know it's it's kind of pretty big there's some timing in it but in the initial stages there's some time because there's this big triangular structure and they kind of run around it a little bit and someone climbs over so there's kind of a little bit of timing and staging in it before he escapes um but yeah it, it, it's uh, you know that's kind of one of the big action set pieces and it's you know and i'm thinking again this came out the same year as um you only live twice, which has a phenomenal rooftop chase. They're chasing through the docks where they end up on on a rooftop at some point. You know, it's just frankly, I think one of the high points of the entire James Bond franchise. But it's night and day in terms of one movie cost one amount of money and another movie cost like ten times that much money. Um, but I did enjoy yeah, the Russian yeah. premiere with his like incredible bushy eyebrows they, they <laughs> sticky taped God on damn. there. Uh, which which doesn't like I'm not aware if that was, you know, um yeah, I was trying to think who who it was mocking. Like, I don't think, like, Khrushchev, it didn't read like that to me at all. It just felt like just something they made up on the day to <laughs> put in, you know? And, yeah, I, I have no Stalin, idea. Stalin, maybe, I guess? He uh, had bushy eyebrows, but, I Yeah, he doesn't have a mustache. So, like, they I know, given... <laughs> it's like they went halfway. They <laughs> they ran out of time in the makeup room, Jack. They didn't and have then, time yeah, to attach that's true. <laughs> Well, they probably took all the time when they get on the plane full of, uh, full of uh, Fidel Castro's. Everyone in <laughs> Cuba looks like Fidel Castro. My lord. Yeah. Uh, some some problematic elements, especially in, in life. Language. Very confusing <laughs> details, frankly. Yeah, just that what it's just some of the cheap uh, the Russian stuff is especially cheap. Like they don't even have B roll <laughs> to establish a Russian <laughs> setting. They have a still fucking image and they just keep <laughs> using the same one. <laughs> Uh, that's that's what communism will give you you don't even have anything <laughs> worth worth filming it it's very funny and it, it's yeah it, like i guess the, the, what it really i will take away from these films is the uncertainty of them the the kind of like they seem to poke fun at certain american holy you know sacred cows and then they pull away and i guess i guess james bond proper does that too you know they kind of like Every so often, and particularly the Daniel Craig year, there's come to very much examine you know what 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 British Empire means, etc. But they can't really like they can't really come out and say it's bad. So they kind of have to like just you know reel it back in towards the end and and get back to like look he's a hero. It's for our own good. Uh, the Inlet Flint series has has that same confusion at its core that uh, you know our man is one you know. He's he's a, a brilliant man of letters and ingenuity and everything, but he's kind of like he'll stop people. You know, like we need nuclear weapons, we need you know the social order. Women have their place, and uh, like the, he he's very much you know like men are clearly top dog. And uh, there's just so many competing elements. It gets very confusing, and I guess films don't they don't come out anywhere coherent. But I guess they're maybe. Uh, maybe interesting products of their time of the the mid to late 60s of discussions that were happening the women's liberation movement was certainly certainly you know 
making great strides uh, at this period. Um, and this film, I guess, tried to meet them up to a point. Because it's funny, because, I mean, the, the talk about women, you know, where the women assert how they're going to take over, they make, they make some fair points. Uh, and then it kind of comes out, like, yes, but have you considered men? And that's sort of the end of us. <laughs> I just, I, I wish, again, it just feels like two, two writers, especially on In Like Flint at some point, because his notion of, like, why don't you just be patient? You're going to take over anyway. Well, that's a progressive stance, I suppose, at the time, <laughs> as opposed to couching that in also, like, that's absurd. Women belong in the kitchen. It's like, well, <laughs> these don't sound like they're coming out of the same person's mouth. You know? Yeah, there, there's definitely a, a a curious schizophrenia to Flint somewhere, which which I guess is kind of kind of part of his character in both of the films. He's he's both very debonair and forward thinking, and also uh, a, an instrument of the government in one way or another. It's it's you know a man who uses violence to solve problems. So I, I, in a way, I guess maybe he's a very good Bond analog. Well, really, he's he's a representative of America, you know. On in theory, a very progressive idea for a nation, but in fact, just as <laughs> as oppressive as any. <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, did you ha say you had a uh, a preference, Jack, between the two films? You know, I I think on balance, and it's tough. I really I thought in like Flint was going to win me over based on the start. I really enjoyed it, but honestly, as as progressed, I would probably have to concede that Our Man Flint is indeed the the better of the two films. I don't I don't think there's much in it. I think both films are. If you're looking for a, an interesting kind of a, a pretty good Sunday afternoon movie, I think both of them are well worth checking out because, as we've discussed, they're very difficult films to parse. They, they will definitely leave you with questions so that they're very easy to watch, but they're also kind of... Uh, they d they don't quite finish in a way that's complete that lets them kind of exit your mind easily. So I think I'll be I think I th I feel like yeah, a couple of years from now at some point I'll just think about Flint and I'll be like, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> and that's honestly that's that's pretty good. So I think our man Flint, but I think both of them are going to be confusing the hell out of me for for many days to come. <laughs> I feel like yeah, if you've got if you've got like a stomach for that sort of. Again, Adam West Batman is a, is a touch point for me. Like that sort of sure. 60s go-go camp. Then, uh, yeah, you're, you'll have criticisms of both of these films. Neither one is a, a masterwork, but you'll also enjoy the hell out of them. They're just a very easy and fun watch. Yeah, I uh, I had a I had a fun time watching these. Uh, you know, we, we stressed that maybe they're maybe they they don't quite are maybe not as as funny or as much of a romp as I was expecting. And then also I think a lot of the spy thriller elements that we're going for could have been a bit stronger. It does kind of, it is a bit unwavery, but uh, yeah, Coburn, he's a consistently great. If you want to see it for any reason, I would say just see it for him. He's good in them. Yeah. That's, that's a big, a big point for me where uh, yeah, Jack was even when we were discussing it off, I saying, Oh, well, you know, it's it's maybe not zany enough to top some of the Roger Moore stuff, but for me, it's I don't want to watch Roger Moore. <laughs> I do want to watch Coburn, um, and and that is the fundamental difference between like seventies Bond and, and these films for me. Uh, I I would easily take uh, either of these over uh, Live and Let Die any day. <laughs> well, maybe not Live and Let Die. But I feel you got to love to learn to love the Moore, you know. 
this honestly i you know i in like flint followed by octopussy would be would be a day that would be uh, an interesting adventure on your sofa well i haven't had the pleasure so uh, I'll, I'll have to seek <laughs> that one out <laughs> honestly you, you may find that flint and bond have more shared dna than you would ever <laughs> have thought possible <laughs> So yeah, um, I don't. Do we have anything else? Is there any, anything we've forgotten to to cover in this uh, whirlwind overview of the two movies? Uh, I think that's it for for my notes on the the Flint films. I'm glad we were able to to cover two films uh, for the price of one episode. Absolutely, <laughs> for our it's listeners, great. just incredible value all around. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I guess I guess we'll wrap this up then um, as we we decide where we'll go next as we wait for no time to die which is definitely not going to be out within the next month so we'll have to we'll have to step somewhere else um i think this has been a pretty pretty good uh trip i say i think we we're all agreed we recommend these ones give, give them a go if you're if you're in the mood for something silly um so i, I guess we'll go around uh, jake where can people find you on twitter or the internet generally yeah, I'm actually, uh, you can find me on all things at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, hit me up, I'll uh, talk to you there. All right, perfect. And I'm, of course, I'm at Real Jack Eason, or E-A-L-J-A-C-K-E-A-S-O-N on Twitter, where I post too much. Adam, you, you, you are very sensible. You don't maintain a web presence, particularly. This is true, yeah. If people want to get a hold of me, you can just use Optimism Vaccine's email, which is uh, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Absolutely. And if you have suggestions on Bond, Bond-adjacent films you'd like us to take a look at, we are, we're all ears, honestly. Uh, when, when, no time to die. Is it October? What was the last I heard? Might be, might be a release date. October 8th so we got we have some time but in the interim uh yeah check out check out our man Flint Flint check out uh, in like Flint and uh take care of yourselves Jake do you do you have the last word on this one yeah for your ears only we'll return Disarming and style that is alarming and such a wowie face when you approach me. Oh, how I tingle, reproach me if you're not single. Mind with evil.